this whole operation was a moment. Yeah. The mole's deep inside. You can understand you're very upset. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. Welcome to episode number six of Central Intelligence Cinema. After a brief break, we are back better than ever and ready to bring you more spy movie reviews, as well as talking up the latest spy movie intel. So, without further ado, let's get into Mission Impossible 1. Take it away, Pierce. Beg your pardon, forgot to knock. Welcome to the CIC, initiating security clearance. My name is Napoleon Soto. Bond. James Bond. Ethan Hunt. Felix Leiter. Ilya Kuriaki. Identity confirmed. Now, pay attention, 007. Welcome to Central Intelligence Cinema, a podcast dedicated to spy movies and secret agent pop culture. Your mission, should you decide to accept it. Remember, nothing ever goes according to plan. Tom, what do you think you're doing? Even the British and Expecting to talk? Yeah, baby! <laughs> Recorded from an undisclosed seat location on an undisclosed international flight offering Betamax movies? Welcome to Central Intelligence Cinema Podcast. I'm Jason Greenberg, and with me, as always, should you choose to accept it, Ben Esslinger. <laughs> Thank you, Jason, and welcome back to Central Intelligence Cinema. Finally, back in the chair, sitting virtually opposite my co-host, Jason Greenberg. Woo! It's good to be back. It's good to be back. We got, yeah, a, it is. got a big, big movie that is one of the anchors of this podcast to begin with, which is Mission Impossible. And we're starting at the very beginning. Very excited, despite <laughs> this movie's weakness. Very excited to get this... I'm very excited to get this one out of the way so we can move on to increasingly better ones. And it's really interesting <laughs> that it does really quickly gets much better. Because <laughs> I think about I think about the later ones. I think about Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation and how good those movies are. And then I watch this Mission Impossible One, and wow! <laughs> but that's, it, that's it was still between fun. having an. It was fun. Yeah. It's the difference between having an auteur making your movie and an action person making your movie or an actually good director. Oh, gosh, I just said it. Making your movie. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like Brian De Palma and I like Brian De Palma movies. But when I go to see a Brian De Palma movie, I expect to see a Brian De Palma movie, not just a movie. Right. And there's there's this the one does not disappoint. <laughs> well, before we get into all that, I think it's long overdue that we get into the latest intel. Looking for a news story? Impress me. Transmitting CIC Intel dossier. They'll print anything these days. Okay, so an Intel report. Man, it's been months and months <laughs> thanks to the lovely well. pandemic that we're... <laughs> That we're all trying to survive in our own special way through. <laughs> That's right. But hey, at, at least it gave us something to actually report on. Yeah, we have a new trailer. We have the new No Time to Die trailer, which uh, 
It's 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 got a lot of stuff in it. It you can definitely tell that they went for the action on this one. They were definitely trying to show you a lot of whiz bang, big uh, set piece type things, big sets, big action, all that kind of stuff. Flying flying airplanes that turn into submarines, you know. Yeah. You know, transformer type <laughs> airplane type things. So just a general impression. What did you think of it? Well, you know, it, it didn't feel like it was advancing things a whole lot further along than the last big trailer did. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I mean, you, you maybe get a little bit more sense of the uh, the size of the problem. But like every other James Bond problem, it amounts to millions of people are going to die, which they literally say in the trailer. Right. Uh, I think it seems like maybe they're going to let Daniel Craig be a more human Bond in this movie. Yeah, I would agree with that. I also, you you mentioned that, you know, millions of people are going to die or whatnot, but I would argue that this is the first Daniel Craig Bond where he's actually allowed to save the world, where Daniel Craig's Bond is actually saving the world. In all the other movies, it's always been a little bit smaller of a a problem. And, And this one is a much more global sounding, we finally get in the final one, he's finally saving the entire world. So I'm actually okay with that. Are you going to be okay with him dying at the end? <laughs> you know, honestly, we're going to get a reboot anyway. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it would be nice to see a bond, not just change a face rather just end and, yeah. and start somewhere else. <laughs> I have a hard time believing they're actually going to do that just because there were so many rumors that came out after uh, what's his name left Danny Boyle. There were a lot of rumors that he was, he had wanted to do that. And the fact that it got out into the open, it makes me wonder whether they would actually still do it or if it would be too predictable at this point. But I don't know. Um, Remember, they they killed Leonard Nimoy at the beginning of Wrath of Khan to throw everybody off, but they still ended up killing him at the end. Uh, and everybody knew that was coming. So <laughs> Let's see. A couple of things that I wrote down here. Oh, some of the lines, though, from Felix really were just such throwaway the heroes you can't do, tell who's good and who's bad anymore like i was just like <laughs> come on dude i mean you had all this time to craft and recraft a script and that's what you give felix to, to he's say. a he, he's already looking at westworld uh season four and playing uh, commissioner gordon for sparkly batman so he's, he's done with james <laughs> bond i think i'm really excited for sparkly batman honestly just because yeah just because he is playing commissioner gordon like i'm, I'm yeah kind i of mean if, if you have to follow gary oldman uh, it's a pretty good follow but i wasn't terribly happy with uh with jk simmons small part in uh justice league you know mm-hmm. he would think he would seem to be a good commissioner gordon but he's a significantly better J. Jonah Jameson. So uh, I kind of feel like he was a placeholder for us to get to... Uh, Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright. But uh, we're, we're definitely not talking about Batman movies today. No, we are not. I know. <laughs> I was just thinking that. I'm like... No, there's no reason why we can't talk about Batman movies, but that, that that's another podcast. Yeah, that's for another podcast. Um, um, so the two things that I noticed from watching the trailer... And they're not anything important or mind-blowing or, ooh, it's going to ruin the whole plot. One, the last line that Daniel Craig has in it where he's very emotional, and I can't Mm. remember what he says, but he sounds just like Timothy Dalton, which I'm sure was a coincidence to my ears, but it was kind of funny at the same time. Right? Uh, And then there's that where he slides into the tunnel 
mm-hmm. at the very end, and it's clearly a homage to the opening so, sequence. To the gun barrel <laughs> sequence. Yes. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> what the thing that stood out to me about this particular trailer was the scope of the shots that they chose. They chose these big, yeah. wide shots to show how really sell how big this movie is. This and the sets. I think the most impressive thing about all yeah. of the tra- all of the trailers that I've seen, the sets look fantastic. Like very Ken Adam from Safin's or Safin's Lair to just just all of the different sets that I've seen. I'm I'm really impressed with it. The only one that I'm a little less warm on is whatever that cityscape is where Bond meets up with Anna de Armas's character at night and she hands him the the tux. That set, I have an issue when it feels like I'm looking at a set and it's supposed to be outside. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you're mm-hmm. supposed to be thinking that these people are outside and it's obviously inside something. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I don't want to watch a movie that takes place inside the the mall at, at Caesar's palace. You know what I mean? Like with the fake sky and the. <laughs> Welcome to the forum shops. <laughs> right. At exactly. Caesar's palace. Exactly. Yeah. So I will be curious to see how it looks on the big screen in context with the rest of it. And I, it, it yeah. could be, it could be much better once I actually see it, you know, in context or whatever. Yeah. I also, something that's been brought up a lot is the, that big bomb that, gets sent down the elevator shaft with all the little bombs that come off of it as it's as it's plunging <laughs> down probably the most cartoony moment of probably the most hei- <laughs> the most heightened reality of so far well except for the plane the plane <laughs> the the transformer plane <laughs> mm-hmm. is it a plane is it a glider is it a submarine <laughs> I'm just hoping it's called Little Nelly. I mean, that that would make that would my day a, if it was. Oh my goodness! Or <laughs> Nelly's father, right. Nelly's nephew, Uncle Nelly, <laughs> Aunt Nelly. <laughs> but, Although uh, it won't have it won't have the same effect of Ben Whitshaw saying it. And yeah. I've, I've brought Little Nelly. That would be incredible. <laughs> Holy cow. I really do hope they give it a nickname, though. That would be amazing. <laughs> it needs, yeah. well, we need that. We need that back. We need some of that stuff back. I, I agree because, I mean, there really hasn't been any car gadgety or transportation gadgety things in any of Daniel Craig's movies. Yeah. I mean, he's had the cars with the gadgets, but we haven't had a unitasker gadget specific vehicle of some kind. <laughs> yeah. I will say, too. And I and I've seen this sort of in in different discussion forums is that this feels like Daniel Craig's Pierce Brosnan film that it has the mm-hmm. same energy to it like it's 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 more actiony it's it's more pow bang whiz a little bit more gadgets a little lighter but not but not Roger Moore light. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm okay with that, I think. I felt like the energy on this one is a good, it's good energy to go out on if it lives up to the trailer. Because if, if we had gone out, if, if we had gone out with Spectre, I would have been really upset. <laughs> I just, I, I, I mean, don't know. I, I feel like it had a great ending. It, it did have a great ending, but there were just, there were too many moments in that movie. I was just, uh, just, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> just one shot into into a gas line and it blows up the whole layer. I'm just like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out, man. 
But anyway, we're not here to talk about Spectre. We're just here to talk about the the trailer. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I will say this. I feel like for me, it achieved achieved what it was supposed to achieve for me, which is get me excited to see the film again. Mm -hmm. Because I I had become just sort of, well, I don't know when it's even coming out, you know. And right. this sort of tells me that they're doubling down and that they're willing to push forward. And maybe it was because of Tenet. Maybe it was because the fact that Tenet is having yeah, I don't know. moderate success. I don't know. And speaking of, you went and saw Tenet. I did. And this is true intel here. I want to know what, it, what it's like from the front lines in the movie theater. Quiet. Quiet? <laughs> Not a whole there lot of people maybe, there? There may be 20 other people and... There were two large groups, which always makes me laugh. Um, and then a smattering of couples. And then there was this one old dude with a beard in the back looking at all the other people. Going, <laughs> <laughs> and were, was everybody wearing masks or how was that? Uh, they all started wearing masks. But I mean, people started eating popcorn and drinking Coca-Cola. And the masks don't go back on, you know. Right. People but, just uh, the theater are going to do. Yeah. Well, the theater is requiring, you know all the seats around where you book to be empty. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I, the seat I got basically the four seats in front of me, behind me and the two seats to the sides of me mm-hmm. were nobody could sit next to me. So I was in my own little nest of movie happiness. <laughs> and, so you felt uh, relatively safe. Yeah. I, at some point in time, you have to go out and you have to live your life, uh, not worry about whether or not something that kills one and a half percent of the people in the country is going to kill you when you watch a movie. And, you know, I, for me, I will tell you right now, it has been maybe since I was 12 that I went this long without going to a movie in a movie theater. Wow. Um, and of all the things that people cry and complain and bitch about with this, what's going on with this whole thing, mine has just been, I can't go to the movies. It's my thing. <laughs> I do not have the courage to go just yet, and I know that is silly, probably, but not even Tom Cruise's publicity stunt. Did you see that recently? Yes. He showed up, he went and saw Tenet, and they filmed the whole thing and put it on social media. I didn't see that. Yeah, they they filmed him, like, walking in to see Tenet in London, wearing a mask, of course, and... Like, a mask from the movie we're going to review? (laughs) (laughs) I just want to see if, if this video, at the end of the video, he just goes, yeah. pulls it off, and it pulls off a big rubber mask. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, only Tom, only Tom Cruise can do that. You know, he, yeah. he'll lead the way. So I know you had said to me off recording that some of the audio, they were having audio issues with, with the screening that you had of Tenet, but from what you got of it, how was it? It was great. Uh, I think all I really missed... Okay, so here's the thing. Without going into too much detail and ruining the movie, you have a uh, Hans Zimmer-like score, because he did not score this particular movie, because he decided to do a little film coming out at the end of the year called Dune. Um, <laughs> but whoever was uh, playing Zimmer light did a pretty good job. The problem was the, the sound mix in the, in the IMAX theater was so off that every time you get the warm, warm, the dialogue went. Oh gosh. Plus half the movie people have masks over their faces. And I'm like, does Nolan have a thing for this? 
Yeah. You, you aren't even getting any of this, Mr. Way. You oh, just God. couldn't hear anyone. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's... <laughs> if you can't see lips moving, that's going to cause it's some... difficult. Yeah. And if you do have a mask on, you've got to do ADR and, and yes, make it audible. Which they, and, I don't think they did. And I think that's a huge that's a huge issue I have with a lot of movies right now. I feel like dialogue, quality of dialogue audio has been it, that's like a trend right now where they're so obsessed with getting the performance that they're not focused on being able to hear what people are actually saying. It's a it's a huge pet peeve of mine right now just in movies in general. Well, I think since the beginning of really the digital age of recording films and everything a lot of filmmakers have come to think that the quality they're getting on set is adequate enough right. because, you know, there's so many, been so many advantages. Precisely. Yeah. Um, Cause you don't really hear a lot of ADR stuff anymore. I mean, you don't hear it mm-hmm. when you're watching a movie. There used to be a time when you could tell, yeah, that, that didn't happen is his right. mouth's not moving or it doesn't have the same sort of background ambiance that, uh, that right. the rest of it had. I'm, you know, the best thing was whenever they would overdub people on network movies. Right. Know, full yeah. squad. Um, <laughs> well, I don't think fun- that's Jackie Gleason. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, what's funny too is in my in my profession, which is unscripted reality, you can definitely tell when it's a when it's a pickup. Yes. But but you know that's because we're doing the that stuff on the fly. It's not done in a sound studio. They can't right. sweeten the hell out of it. There's no budget to do that. This is the this is movies. These are multi-million dollar movies. They can get the pickup if they need it. You know, they can re-record Absolutely. it and and sweeten it to sound right or re-record it if they need to re-record it again. Right. So. Well, and I'll be curious when I when I watch it again here at home, I'm getting on Blu-ray or whatever else. Yeah. I honestly think it had more to do with the sound system not being calibrated properly. Yeah. Than anything else, because all you were getting were was the bass. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons I usually don't go to IMAX is because the only one that I've ever been at that had really good calibration was not here. In and so. Um, oh, Jason, you I've gave away to, our location. <laughs> you gave away our secret location. <laughs> can you edit that out? <laughs> I'm going to put a little beep. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna have to i almost disclosed it <laughs> but yeah i mean if i had watched it in a regular theater it probably would have been fine um yeah. that was just a show time and i'm like ooh, christopher nolan big screen yay yeah and as always disappointed ooh, so. <laughs> cool cool well uh one other and i hate i don't want to bring the room down but i feel like i can't do this intel report with at least bringing it up um I just found out this morning that Diana Rigg passed away. Yeah. So that's a that's a huge loss, especially for people, you know, big time Bond fans. That sure there's, there's definitely a lot of outpouring uh, for Diana Rigg. So rest in peace to her. That was uh, yeah, kind of a kind of a bummer situation there, but you know, at least we have oh. uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service to remember her with. So so that's good. And the Avengers. And the Avengers, Avengers, which is I need to go back and see that. I really, I really want to go. By the way, kids, not not the ones with guys in armor and shields, but uh, the ones with bowler hats and tight <laughs> yes. leather white suits. Exactly, that's right. <laughs> you but, have but to, not, but not the tight leather white suits that you find with the other Avengers with the shields, right. and, and armor. <laughs> you have to kind of clarify in this day and age. <laughs> 
A lot of Avengers. <laughs> a lot of people avenging. Not, not not the Marvel's Avengers, which that's the whole reason they had to slap Marvel on it because they didn't want to confuse it with the TV show and the one moderately okay movie where Sean Connery was a bad guy. <laughs> All right. Well, should we get back into this uh, this year movie? Yeah, if we have to. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Simple game. Is he serious? Always. It's much worse than you think. We're being ambushed. Abort, that's an order. It was a decoy. I can understand you're very upset. You've never seen me very upset. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. So, yes, Mission Impossible, the very first one, released in 1996. I'm trying to think Can about... Can you believe where... that? Oh, man, 1996. I don't even... Where the hell was I in 1996? I don't know. But, yeah, directed by Brian De Palma of Brian De Palma fame. <laughs> and he does have fame. I mean, <laughs> the man made Scarface. <laughs> so The Untouchables, one of my, my top 25 favorite movies of all time. Yeah, yeah. So it's just uh, just right off the bat. I mean, my my first impression of this movie was I feel like they built the entire movie around that one scene where Tom Cruise drops into the room, into the <laughs> into the computer room, and everything else is just sort of built around that to support that scene. And yeah, everything yeah. is sort of inferior to that scene. They think that well, they thought they were going to want it one up it with the helicopter inside the channel yeah but no. which which psm by the way i was actually really hoping that you were gonna say recording from inside a helicopter inside the channel it's central <laughs> intelligence cinema <laughs> but that that would have disclosed our location band oh yes yes it would have it would have <laughs> 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 so writing on this movie we could do a whole podcast on the writing process of this movie because it went through so much yeah. change bruce geller has a credit because of his work on the tv show the story was by uh, david kep who based on the rest of his cv tends to write a lot of screenplay adaptations mm -hmm. he worked on jurassic park spider-man carlito's way and several others in that same sort of capacity. There's also a huge unofficial list of people who worked on this script. Uh, not that Wikipedia is remotely reliable, but if it is even somewhat <laughs> accurate, we could, yeah. I mean, the other th interesting thing is uh, Kep was actually fired from writing at one point and then hired back again. You know that uh, Carlito's Way is also a De Palma film, right? Yes, yes. Well, I know that a, a lot of those, I mean, I know that Kep worked with De Palma on a bunch of stuff, so. I feel like I've seen his name on a Batman movie somewhere. Yeah. Like one of the earlier ones. And I think one of the executives, it may, who knows, it might've even been Tom Cruise, I don't know, who fired Kep, it was definitely not De Palma himself. Can you imagine Tom Cruise firing you? <laughs> I don't know how to, I don't know how I'd feel about that. I've... So Dave, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, you know, we like the energy you brought in, but I just, you know, I, I, I just don't think it's working anymore. Would he go into character like that guy from, uh, uh, 
Tropic Thunder. Wes Grossman. Yeah. <laughs> he goes he goes right into that mode. Part of me wishes that was the case, but I don't think you get Les Grossman until you got a 40 something year old Tom Cruise to play it. I don't yeah. I don't think 30 30 something Tom Cruise had that kind of angst in him yet. Yeah, no, definitely definitely not at this point when I mean he was yeah, 34 when this was released. So, also PSM by the way, he still looks like he's 23 in this movie. It's, I know, it's ridiculous. It's I, I he, he's obviously aging slower than everyone else in the world. Yeah, I'm trying to f- figure out when he adopted Scientology <laughs> to see if that has something to do with his reverse aging process, or if it's I just feel, him. <laughs> I feel like it was pretty early on. I don't know. Maybe they have some sort of magic elixir, but they obviously weren't sharing it with John Travolta. <laughs> You're from. That is definitely true. <laughs> They'd be like, "Sorry, John, you're just not bringing in the numbers that Tom is." <laughs> you don't get the magic elixir. <laughs> <laughs> One of the interesting things about the script was that I think way back at the beginning, before uh, everybody got attached to it and sort of carried along, was that they wanted to bring in um, a bunch of the original actors from the show mm-hmm. as the people that died at the beginning. Which, in my mind, would have been brilliant. It would have been right? amazing because, right? Because you're good. Everybody who was coming in for the uh, the nostalgia of the old show would have just dove right into that, no problem. You know, they used to have a fairly rotating amount of people in the show, so mm-hmm. having a Tom Cruise in there and having the French girl in there that, that wouldn't have been such a big deal. But when they asked Martin Landau, who played the mask wearing guy in the show, if he would come back, he was like, yeah, Julie read that he was going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, yeah, not going to do that. And basically all the other cast members that were invited back, including Peter Graves, who, yes. man, I wish he'd been, I wish oh, he'd been Phelps. But, you know, all of them were kind of flat out no. And then when they all saw it, they all thought it was garbage, which I'm like, hold on a they second. They thought the movie was garbage? Yeah. Uh, Greg Morris actually said that he thought it was, it was, what did you say? I don't remember, but it was not favorable. Um, Wow. I can see where they're coming from, but honestly, what were you guys doing then? Martin Landau was the only one that had any kind of career at that point. Right. And that was courtesy of Tim Burton. (laughs) Um, So I think, particularly, I think from Peter Graves' standpoint, because what did everybody know Peter Graves from at that point in time? He was Captain Over in the airplane movie, right? Nobody <laughs> yeah. knew what he was other than that. You would think that for an actor, that would be the best role ever. Oh, absolutely. Because you I walk mean, in you... getting to be one one thing, and then you end up being something else. Yeah. That's acting. Yeah, exactly. That would have been great. I mean, I would have been all for that. I, I do think um, part of the thing I struggle with is I didn't get to see a lot of the Mission Impossible TV shows I think I've seen one or two in my entire lifetime, and it was a very, very, very long time ago. So I'm not really an expert on the similarity between this movie and the show and whether it captures the essence of the show or whether that's even a good thing or not. You know, like part of of me wonders, just based on watching this movie, I felt like it hammed it up too much. Like it felt like it was pulling stuff out of the TV show Mm-hmm. And I was kind of, I was like, well, you know, you are still trying to make a big blockbuster movie here. Yeah. It goes back to what you were saying about the everything being scripted around that room scene, right? Mm-hmm. So like the first half of the movie where before up to the point where everybody dies, 
spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> that was basically a, a Mission Impossible episode. The right. whole thing was, here's your, you know, Mr. Phelps gets his message in a weird place. It's in his cup of coffee. You know, it's on a toilet roll dispenser, wherever it is. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. He gets the team together. Sometimes they bring in a uh, guest star team member, but he has the core people. But really it evolves. We have to break in. We have to get somebody impersonated in order to break in so we can use our cool masks. Right. We need to find something once we break in, and then we have to get out in the nick of time before anybody realizes we were there. I mean, that is every episode of that show, including yeah. the ones that Leonard Nimoy was in, which happened to be my personal favorites. Um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, that's what it is. And then you think about it, that's all the first part of the, the, uh, the movie is. Absolutely. We make a yeah. mask, we go in, we're all spy, spy, bang, bang, boom, boom, get what we need right. to go. Then everything goes Brian De Palma south in a hurry with, yeah. you know, people getting stabbed and shot and blown up and... That, that was definitely not the, the movie or the TV show at all. Right. So the TV show was more sneaky, sneaky, disguise, disguise. Yes. Getting past people, yes. getting info, sneaking out. Not a lot of... Yeah, bang, it was bang. like Man from Uncle in that it was basically the same thing over and over again. Right. With different actors and different MacGuffins, but you, know, you basically get the same thing. Right. That was just their shtick was, was we're going to put Martin Landau or Leonard Nimoy in makeup playing somebody that was obviously Martin Landau or Leonard Nimoy in makeup. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. they also kept that, that, that going very well in the movie as well. Yes, absolutely. With Tom Cruise <laughs> as the Senator. And he's on that show with, uh, I forget what that guy's name is that, that used to do. Oh, um, the McLa McLaughlin group. That's it. He's yes. McLaughlin. They he used to, to do his parody on Saturday Night Live all the time. Yeah, he was like, wrong, next topic. Yeah. <laughs> it's show number one. <laughs> <laughs> wrong. But yeah, it, it was kind of funny to see Tom Cruise in the mask on the show being interviewed. <laughs> right. <laughs> Obviously in a mask. <laughs> right. I will say that the John Voight mask he had on at the end was quite convincing. Oh yeah, it actually was. I was <laughs> <laughs> almost like they got John Voight to play that part, but there's no way that was clearly Tom Cruise. Absolutely. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've sort of touched on this already, but pho photography. We've got Stephen H. Burham, who is sort of De Palma's right-hand man as far as photography goes. He shot tons of big movies, St. Elmo's Fire, The Untouchables, Body Double. And who could forget Arthur II on the rocks? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even know what you're saying. What are you But it's just funny to me how for a movie that had a pretty decent budget it looks cheap in places and i don't know where they mm -hmm. spent all their money i don't know if it just all went to tom cruise or or what well, he 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 actually took points on that one he waived really? the salary yep okay. which turned out just to be to, a good move on his part yeah just to get it made i will say too actually going back to what you were talking about before as far as the main scene of this movie it's interesting that all the way back to this very first movie that is sort of the template now even now for mission impossible movies where they create set pieces and build the story around them they've even said that flat out in interviews that that's what they do they just think of these crazy things to do and then they're like okay well how can we build the story into this which 
it seems to be working, especially in several of them. I actually thought Fallout was a step. A lot of people love Fallout, but I actually thought Fallout was just a step under Rogue Nation. I actually like Rogue Nation more, but yeah, we can get, a, yeah, we can get uh, into that. <laughs> well, when we get to Rogue Nation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of numbers, the budget for this movie was $80 million, and it made $457 million worldwide which is astounding. That is astounding for 1996. No kid, almost half a billion dollars. And almost more astounding, however, is that it was the third largest grossing movie of the year. Third, not the first, the third. Because apparently 96 was a huge friggin' year because we had Twister and Independence Day. It was a big year for movies in 1996, apparently. And then as a point of yeah. reference, 1995, GoldenEye was released and had a budget of $60 million and made $352 million. So that's a very, very successful movie. But you got to wonder, you know, if it had been for GoldenEye, if this movie would have been a success. Indeed, indeed. And not to delve into Intel Report territory, there was a video that was recently released where Tom Cruise was doing a very... Very GoldenEye stunt. Just recently, he was in Norway and he was riding a motorcycle off of a cliff and then parachuting down, which is one airplane away from the GoldenEye pre-title sequence. Right. So I would have to say that Mission Impossible definitely has GoldenEye to thank for a lot. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And I mean... Arguably, Goldeneye is probably, I think, the best Pierce Brosnan film. Absolutely. uh, And Bond had languished for quite a bit by the time that came out. And so by bringing that movie in the year before, I think it paved the way for spy movies to become a thing again. It very much whet the appetite. Yeah. Music-wise, we've got Danny Elfman, who did the score, but honestly didn't feel that Danny Elfman to me. It just felt like... I I didn't even realize it was Danny Elfman until you pointed it out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's it's not... It doesn't have the Danny Elfman vibe to it. It's just a a Mission Impossible vibe. Just some cheeky Mission Impossible-esque tunes. Although I will say, and I don't know if he even... I don't know if he even did this, but the version of the Mission Impossible theme at the very end of the movie during the credits, I I actually really like that one. But maybe I'm showing my age on that. <laughs> like, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, I think that was the edge at the end. Oh, was, was it a really? Big thing. Yeah, he and I that think was the U two joint, huh? No, no, it was just the edge. Was oh, just the edge. Two of the band members, and since I only know the edge and Bono, I I can't quote names or anything like that. But right. they both submitted their versions of the songs, and mm-hmm. Paramount liked them both. And so they're both utilized in the film, but I'm pretty sure the one at the end is the Edges version. Well, I definitely like that one. I don't know if younger listeners of this podcast will agree with me. (laughs) Maybe maybe that's just my dated tastes. I don't know. Well, you know, there's a challenge when the theme song so describes the content, content. Exactly. So, I mean, what can Danny Elfman do but make something that a soundtrack or a score that sounds like the theme song. I mean, yeah, you don't do a James Bond movie. If Danny Elfman did a James Bond movie, it's not going to be, you know, it's going to be James Bond. All the people that are doing Star Wars movies now, it's the same thing. They all have their own bend on it. But at the end of the day, it has to sound like John Williams or it doesn't sound like a Star Wars movie. Right. You got to kind of stick to the script. 
So then we get into the characters. We've got Tom Cruise, of course, as Ethan Hunt. Again, he was 34, looks, he doesn't even look 24. It's it's it looks crazy. like he just walked off a Tomcat. I mean, it, it's seriously like there's no age between that and Top Gun. I know, which it's funny you mentioned that because I was thinking about that and I found it very interesting. The sort of uh, what's that called uh, when it's a older when it's a younger man, older woman. As a, oh, a May September relationship. A May September relationship. I got some really May September vibes between him and Max in this movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> Vanessa Red Vanessa Redgrave was clearly enamored with her co-star in that particular. But I mean, it's Tom Cruise. It is Tom Cruise. He's a good-looking fellow. Even <laughs> even Kristen Scott Thomas said that you know. Yeah, I died like 10 minutes into the movie, but I got to die in Tom Cruise's arms, so who cares? Oh, jeez. Right? Did so, she really say that? She did, yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so then we've got, uh, speaking of the ladies in this movie, we've got Kristen Scott Thomas as Sarah Davies, and we've got Claire, played by French actress Emmanuelle Bayard. Oof, wow. Mm-hmm. Easy to look at. <laughs> <laughs> there was a very creepy vibe between her and Tom Cruise's character and John Voight's character. Yeah, the, I just uh, yeah, it made it me did kind make, of uncomfortable. It really made me very uncomfortable. Yeah, the worst part was that it was not developed. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of anyway, we've got John on. Voight as Jim Phelps, who again, man, if we had had Peter Graves as Jim Phelps, re, you know, reprising the role, that would have been insanely awesome but no doubt flick did an okay turn though yeah yeah um and then we've got the wonderful henry zerny as kittredge who just plays my favorite it to the person hilt. in the movie just plays it to the hilt i can't wait to see him back in the new ones i know right oh it's gonna be so good and then we've got jean reno as you know he's uh, playing in this movie Jean Reno. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. As every slimy French guy he's ever played. <laughs> exactly. As Krieger. Isn't it funny, though, that he has his, he's got a German name, even though he's French? <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> he was adopted in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> then we've got my favorite, Ving Rhames, as Luther, who is perfect, despite the fact that he's dressed as Marcellus Wallace the first time we see him. <laughs> But I wish, he, I wish he had a briefcase at some point in time that they obviously showed him walking with. Yeah, and a, and a Band-Aid on the back of his neck. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then, as we mentioned before, Vanessa Redgrave is Max, who I she just eats up screen as well. She, oh, she's, yeah. she's so good. And then I really liked Emilio Estevez, even though he was only on there for, you know, 10 minutes or whatever it was, as Jack Harmon. You had to clear the way for uh, Simon Pegg. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Does Emilio Estevez even do movies anymore? I don't even know. He directs a lot now. Okay. Yeah. Apparently being married to Paula Abdul just took it all out of him. You can only imagine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The less said there, the better. (laughs) Yes, indeed. So the uh, pre-title sequence, really short, if you can even call it a pre-title. I mean, I guess it is. So we start in Kiev, and Emilio Estevez is watching closed circuit TV of an interrogation, waiting for the contact to give up a name so he can look it up on his 1996 computer. 
<laughs> and we see to <laughs> on the side, Claire is knocked out, possibly dead. We don't know yet. And the guy that's trying to get the information out of him is wearing a very bad disguise. <laughs> it's actually the worst. Uh, I actually think it's the worst not, mask of the movie. Right. But if, if he's wearing a great disguise, if he's trying to look like ugly Tom Cruise. Well, okay. Yeah. In that case, it's definitely ugly Tom Cruise. It, it works really well in that respect. So, anyway, the guy that they're interrogating is freaking out and it kind of looks like a bad TV novella. It's like mm-hmm. there's just a lot of roughhousing where he's, he's shaking the guy and, and just lots of overdramatic <laughs> gesturing and, and talking and it's just it's silly but anyway so the man eventually cracks and gives up this name and Emilio immediately starts looking up the name and you see another IMF team member behind him uh, preparing some sort of knockout drink she brings out the drinks and the contact drinks it and then Tom Cruise does the little throws the drink to the side while the guy's drinking his drink or whatever so <laughs> <laughs> that old that old trick right works, over works the every, shoulder there we go <laughs> works every time and then of course the guy passes out tom walks into the observation room where emilio's sitting and pulls off his silly rubber mask and wait it's tom cruise imf stuff <laughs> mission impossible surprise, surprise yeah and then uh ethan's gives claire this wake me up shot of some sort and the rest of the team breaks down what's essentially an entire stage set where this room is and then we get tom nervously waiting for claire to wake up and can i just say also about this little moment not that i know this is going to make me sound really creepy i don't care um (laughs) they were so close to nip (laughs) on that shot every time i was watching that shot i couldn't help but go am i seeing a little little something something there anyway it all um, <laughs> just goes back to that creepy. It goes back to that creepy dynamic between the two of them. Man, it, do, it was it, right there at the beginning. Oh yeah, that's the other thing. When he when he's like touching her face and his thumbs on her lip, mm-hmm. and like just doing. I was like, what? Wait, what? Ooh, hey, whoa, that's come on now. <laughs> Hold up, this is Mission Impossible. <laughs> I feel like I feel like ten more minutes of of exposition would have given it so much more depth to this movie. Like they had been planning the thing for a long time, and yeah. she had been sleeping with Ethan for quite a while to get him to yeah. to feel that way. Because I think that's what they were trying to set up. You just didn't get enough of it to yeah. feel like it was genuine, and so it just came out as creepy, like. Oh, you want to screw your mentor's wife? Well, aren't you a great person, Tom Cruise? Yeah. You know? Yeah, it doesn't do a lot for his character. Uh-uh. <laughs> anyway, she wakes up and she's like, did we get it? And he's like, yeah, we got it. And then bam, into the title. Right. So that was a classic Mission Impossible cold open where they were coming off of the end of another mission that mm-hmm. sometimes related to the show, sometimes didn't relate it to the show that followed. Right. And then they kick right into the panels with the... And meanwhile, there's a fuse going the whole time, right, right at the bottom of the screen. Whereas this one, we just see little shots of a fuse, shots of a fuse. Yeah. Woo! Well, and that's where uh, 90s editing really comes into play because uh-huh. holy, holy shotgun edit, Batman. That must have taken, <laughs> listen, I am an editor. <laughs> that must have taken months to complete editing. There are so many cuts in that open. It is insanity. It's just so 90s, I can't even, I can't even. <laughs> but it's just 
knives, masks, computer data, cut, 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 cut. <laughs> and sparks. Oh yeah, sparks, lots of sparks. <laughs> Dogs and cats living together. That's hysteria. <laughs> but it's fun. Yeah, well, like I said, the first part of this movie is such an episode of the show. Yeah. Right down to that. Yeah, exactly. So after the uh, titles roll on, we start with John Voight, a.k.a. Jim Phelps on an airplane. And holy cow, th- this was one of the sets that immediately I'm like, God, this set looks so cheap. Like some of the sets in this movie are terrible. Like they're just not. And again, like that's that's why I kept wondering, where did this money go? <laughs> like, like right. where did they spend all their money for to make this movie because some of these sets that airplane the safe house where they start plotting this whole mission coming up Mm -hmm. that felt really cheap but anyway uh phelps gets his onboard movie in quotes of quote cinema of the ukraine Uh where, (laughs) where he gets his next mission for the team and they are to apprehend rogue agent alexander galitzin at the american embassy in prague who has, wait for it, a list. Yeah. <laughs> We've got another list, of course. It's always a list. There's two lists this time. Two lists, yeah. We got to get the first half of the list and the second half of the list. So he's got the first half of the CIA knock list or non-official cover list of agents and their associated cover names, but he's only got one side of the list. So he's going to this embassy function or whatnot to get the other side, the matching side. And so they're there to stop him from doing this and to apprehend him. Uh, side note, was smoking allowed on planes in 1996? That was my I think first it was on international flights. Yeah. Well, I but... did look it up. <laughs> and uh, it was not allowed in 1990 in the U.S., but overseas it was until 1997 in the anywhere in the EU. So... I guess technically he was probably overseas somewhere, so it was fine. As we said, undisclosed location. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny to see that, though. It's just th- things like that. The, there's an awful lot of stuff in this movie that really show its age, this movie's age. Yeah, totally. But not Tom Cruise. Yeah, not Tom. That's one of the only <laughs> things that doesn't show its age is Tom Cruise. <laughs> So then we get the little classroom vibe scene where Phelps is giving the rundown on the mission to Ethan and the rest of the Scooby-Doo gang. Uh, and it really does feel that way with all the, the chummy stuff, especially with Emilio yeah. Estevez there. I felt like I was watching like a scene from The Breakfast Club. <laughs> like, yeah, no we're kidding. all just sort of chuckling, ha, 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 and ribbing the, <laughs> ribbing the prof. You know, whatever. Except in this scenario, he's the Anthony Michael Hall character, which is even more ironic. (laughs) (laughs) Tom Cruise is clearly the jock in this situation. Yes. Which which means that John Voight is the principal. So I just wish he'd thrown a mess with the bull, son. You get the horns. That would have been fantastic. Next time I have to come in here, I'm cracking skulls. (laughs) (laughs) next time you make a crack about my wife's coffee i'm cracking skulls so uh yeah so basically the whole premise ethan uh is initially going in with a rubber mask as someone famous in this case senator quote-unquote senator john waltzer uh, otherwise known as ross perot right (laughs) spitting image (laughs) 
Uh, Sarah is the liaison initially meeting Ethan. Hannah will have eyes on Galitzin the whole time. Jack is, of course, working the inside with his technology in the elevator shaft. And then Claire is working surveillance outside. And this is actually the first scene that I realized that I'm somehow supposed to believe that John Voigt is married to Claire, which, mm-hmm. ew. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So then they give Phelps a ribbing because he was being wined and dined in Chicago while the team was running the operation in Kiev. Uh, Phelps then tells the the kids to get serious because the agents' lives are at risk, and suddenly they all pull mm-hmm. a, a very serious face, and they all mm-hmm. suddenly, oh, mm-hmm. this is serious. We better be serious. <laughs> so, right. Great acting right there. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so then we get our little makeshift Q branch uh, role planning scene with Emilio getting everyone fitted with glasses. Everyone has glasses in this movie. Whenever yeah. <laughs> that's the only way there are cameras in this movie is you must wear glasses. Everyone couldn't have a lapel camera. No, no, you know, couldn't have a hat or a <laughs> nope. brooch or a, you know, a pterodactyl. Um, yeah. Everything is glasses. All the cameras are mounted on glasses in this movie. <laughs> Then we see driving routes, this very uh, nice model of the map of Kiev. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, we see who Ethan is being disguised as. They're watching the the show with the, uh, again, I'm forgetting the- McLaughlin Report. McLaughlin Report. And it's obviously Tom Cruise dressed with the mask on as the senator, even in the show (laughs) that they're watching. Uh Um, (laughs) Ha ha. And then- Ethan gets his explosive gum and we get that really horrible line from Emilio Estevez, the hasta lasagna, don't get any on you. (laughs) You know what the best part of that was though, was that you had Tom Cruise snapping on his gum and he's like, just, just don't chew it. And he's all, Oh yeah. That was the much better part of it. Yes. So then we fade into the ball or, or whatever this function is, and everyone's getting situated. We see Phelps monitoring the whole situation. Emilio is scaling up the elevator shaft. And then we get the POV on Phelps's computer, and then it fades into the actual POV from Ethan making his way up the stairs as the senator, greeted, greeted by a bunch of different people. And then Sarah comes down the stairs, and she sort of greets him. In character, of course. And then Ethan turns around, and then we see Galitzin finally making his entrance. Then we see Hannah up on the stairs, and she's being told by Phelps to turn on the shades, and she presses a little thing on her glasses and the glasses. Uh. (laughs) It's so... (laughs) That part was really cheap. I'm like... I'm actually trying to think, too, if that was even necessary at all. If Hannah's role... I don't think it wasn't. I don't, I don't think I, other than the fact they always had at least two female operatives on the team, but they already had those two. Yeah. I don't understand the whole point of having her in it other than another body to blow up in a car. I, I think that's it. Her entire purpose is to die in that car right. so that somebody because dies everything in that that's sh- right. Everything that she's doing, you could have had Kristen Scott's character do. Right. Yeah. Spray the thing on him and whatever else. All of that could have been done. She was, I think, just up there to look pretty in her 70s style glasses that turn dark yeah. and die a horrible, burning, flaming death in a BMW. That was it. <laughs> so sort of like the blonde from at the beginning of Jaws. That's her whole point was to run around naked on a beach and get killed by a shark. 
we <laughs> happy times. Um, <laughs> so, so then Sarah ushers the senator through the crowd to begin his quote unquote tour. And they make their mm-hmm. way to the entrance of the restricted area where there's a little thumbprint security thing. And there's two guys behind a door sort of monitoring all that. And uh, Jack, meanwhile, is trying to hack into the thumbprint scanning archive system so that Sarah's thumbprint shows up as being authorized. And I do kind of like the little, since everybody's wearing a microphone, they're sort of chattering about a Jack on his staff who always seems to be late. Very pre-Simon Pegg, Simon Pegg stuff. Um, (laughs) So then... So then uh, Ethan and Sarah, they get through and they enter the computer room and they set up Ethan's camera glasses uh, so that it's looking right at the computer where they anticipate Galitzin to be. And there's some confusion about getting into hiding before Galitzin comes in, Uh, but it's really just sort of to try and up the tension. They're just trying to kind of up the ante, like, how come the doors aren't opening? Why can't we get out? Here he comes, hide. So <laughs> anyway, so as the elevator's coming down, Phelps opens the doors and Sarah and Ethan jump down and, and hide underneath the elevator. And then Galitzin gets, he gets what he needs. He apprehends the list. Uh. Uh, <laughs> so then we're, we're happy there. So then Ethan takes off his mask and he and Sarah exit the building. And this is sort of where everything goes wrong. This is when, when we get into the classic thing that where everything goes wrong. Uh, Jack loses control of the elevator and he gets killed, which it's weird. It's a weird last little shot right before of his head of his head reaching whatever that thing is that's hanging down. It's mm-hmm. kind of it's kind of weird. It's not gory. I don't know if it's meant to, like it almost felt like yeah, why was it even there? Yeah, it just felt like bad editing. Like, I don't know. And then part of me was like, well, why didn't he just if he knew that it wasn't working? Why didn't he just jump to the side and and sort of. Mm-hmm. sandwich himself to the side of it because he did that earlier in the elevator shaft. He proved right. that he could literally stand in that in that little lane. Or at the very least, if you know you're going to get up to those things, why not lay flat so maybe right. it won't hit something important like your brain. <laughs> right. Instead, he just looks right up at it and opens his mouth. <laughs> right. And that was the worst shot in the entire movie because it really is. It almost feels like they had committed a full shot to watching him get impaled like that. And in order to get the rating they needed to have, they had to dial that shot back. And so from that standpoint, you should have just written it off. You knew what was happening. All you had to do was stop it at the claws coming down and make a sound. And you would have known. They absolutely should have cut to somebody like a reaction shot from somebody. Yes. And that yes. and then you would have known exactly what happened and it wouldn't have felt fake because this felt really fake. It was a really yes. you're I, I agree. Like I think they only half committed to it and as a result it looks even worse than just completely saying no we're not going to do this. It looks worse than Emilio Estevez's career in the 2000s. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> So then uh, Galitzin is forced to go into the elevator shaft and walk outside in order to get out of there since the elevator is completely broken. At this point, Jim leaves the base to pursue what's going on, to figure out what's going on. While he's on the bridge, Phelps realizes he has a shadow and tells the team to abort the mission. He says, cut all radio communication because they're being ambushed. Ethan doesn't want to, of course, because the list is already out in the open. Mm -hmm. 
Ethan tells Sarah to follow Galitzin anyway to try and get the disc, which of course is his sort of fatal flaw in this whole thing. And then at this point, Ethan goes around to the other side of the embassy to try and help Phelps, who gets shot before he can reach him, at least according to his body cam footage. No, 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 no. His eyeglass His eyeglasses footage. That's right. I'm sorry. Eyeglass footage. Because, again, everyone, everyone's wearing glasses. (laughs) So, anyway. So then we see Phelps. He falls off the bridge into the river in a very unconvincing fall over that bridge <laughs> very very bad theater so Ethan gets to the bridge and tells Sarah to abort but at this point she's cut her radio so she's now sort of doomed and Ethan starts running again Ethan does a lot of running um <laughs> Tom Cruise does a lot of running Tom Cruise does a lot of running at this point Hannah gets into the car where Claire was <laughs> We don't know mm-hmm. where Claire is at this point because um, we only see Hannah's side of the car. And then the car explodes. Ethan keeps running to find Sarah, who's still following Galitzin. And we also see another couple at this point who are obviously other spies, the other team, the other IMF team that's sort of monitoring the situation. And... Tom Cruise gets over there and then uh, he's basically too late. Yeah, he comes around the corner and Sarah stabbed to death along with Galitzin because Sarah had gone over there to see what was going on because Galitzin starts sort of wildly thrashing about at, at the gate. And so she goes over to find out what's going on. Then she gets killed in the process out of curiosity. Watch that knife. <laughs> Watch that knife. <laughs> <laughs> After Ethan's realizes that she's dead he makes a run for it and he uses some weird little gadget on a payphone i'm guessing to avoid being traced or whatnot and he calls imf and he speaks to kittredge and everybody's dead he's freaking out and then kittredge on the other end doesn't seem panicked at all and he's like well let's just get you back safe let's uh," you know so He tells Ethan to meet him at a restaurant in an hour. And it's at that point that Ethan also realizes it's like, wait a minute, Kittredge is in Kiev at this very moment. So another sort of foreshadowing of what's really going on here. Mm -hmm. And then we get to, I would say one of the, it's not a great scene, but it's a better scene in the movie just because Kittredge, (laughs) I mean, Henry Zerny just gets to flex his muscles in this, in this scene at the rest, at the restaurant. And where Ethan meets Kittredge. Can I, can I just say, what is that restaurant? You know, and it not look like the most random thing in the world. It's so, it's like so this, out of place. It looks so out of right. place. And on top of it, I'm looking at it. It's just sheer glass. You can see through the entire thing. I'm like, is there a gate at all that like protects this when they close? Like it just looks exactly. so, it looks so wildly out of place. That is a restaurant that would have looked in place about 15 years later, mm-hmm. but not in 1996, man. No, no. So has there ever been a, a building in a movie that was more purposely built and created <laughs> for one scene for that one you can recall? Scene. And that was Tom Cruise's idea, by the way, that whole scene. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we, we, <laughs> we get into the discussion and Tom Cruise looks completely disheveled, like he'd just gone on a bender or something. And... <laughs> He basically discovers that the list was a decoy to set their team up and uh, Kittredge tries to play it off like he doesn't know what he's talking about. And then Ethan's like, well, obviously there's another team. They're all here in this restaurant. (laughs) Everyone Mm -hmm. in this restaurant is part of your team. And so then it's at this point that Kittredge just sort of 
flat out accuses him of being the mole, working with some arms dealer named Max, mm-hmm. working on some job called Job 314. And then also Kittredge divulges that someone has mysteriously given Ethan's parents a huge sum of money. So then we get all this tense buildup while he's making his case and Ethan on the sly is breaking out the explosive gum. And then at the very end of Kittredge's big talking moment, he's like, mm-hmm. um, you look upset or whatever. And then Ethan, of course... <laughs> And then Ethan, of course, says, Kittredge, you haven't even seen me upset. And that's when he throws the gum at the huge fish tank. And here's just a, a thing, though, with this. with He's throwing the gum at the fish tank, and it sticks to the fish tank. Mm-hmm. When have you ever taken a dry piece of gum out of a packet, uh-huh. and it's stuck to anything at all? <laughs> like, But apparently, this is really sticky gum. So, anyway. Well, now, so... It, it obviously ca- causes some sort of a thermal reaction when you put the two together to make uh, it an explosive. Oh, so there you go. It got superheated. It's sticky. Plausible. Mythbusters say oh. it's plausible. Plausible. <laughs> Busted. No, plausible. So he throws the gum at the fish tank, and then the explosion, and all this water, and Ethan makes a run for it. And can I just say that I remember this scene being much more spectacular when I saw it in 1996. Mm -hmm. Watching it now, it was so lackluster. It just looked like he was trying to avoid getting wet. Like he was just sort of dancing dancing over the water as he's running out of the the restaurant. It does not look like this huge thing. No. There was no need to slow this scene down and have slow motion right there. Like, <laughs> well, in the trivia uh, on IMDb, they pointed out that they tried shooting it with a stunt person or, and it didn't work. And so, so they have to the blow up that asked, thing twice. <laughs> well, I, I'm trying to remember if it specifically said they did the stunt twice or when they were blocking it, they didn't like it because of the camera angles. And so uh, De Palma asked Tom Cruise if he would do it. And the, the danger wasn't the side tank. It was the tank above him when that goes oh. up where all the water comes from the ceiling. And, you know, of course, they make it sound like a Tom Cruise could have drowned. I'm like, well, you know, he could drown in a bathtub. This is Tom Cruise. Yeah. I feel like this made – I feel like it wasn't to Palma. I feel like it was Cruise going, you know what? I think I could do this better because that's Tom Cruise. And because of the shot, him coming out of that window, they only had that one shot. I could easily say, I'm saying, they're going to know it's not me if I come through there. I'm just going to do it because I'm Tom right. Cruise. Well, and it looks like they deployed the above fish tanks later. Yes. It was like a secondary explosion. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if that was because of what you're talking about, about them worried about his safety or whatever. Yeah. Meanwhile, he jumps out like there's a full-on explosion behind him. I know. It's and it's really just, just like, water. It's just water and some fish. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it just, it looks like he's trying to avoid getting wet. He's like, I don't want to mess exactly. up my suit. <laughs> so... Anyway, so Ethan goes back to the safe house. The last place they'd ever look for him. Yeah, why? <laughs> good idea, dude. <laughs> so, so he starts trying to pick up the pieces. He's looking for this Max character who was, was in this mission job 314 or whatever. So he gets on the Usenet because, you know, it's the 90s and Usenet groups are like everything apparently on the internet in 1996, which... Uh. I mean, I remember Usenet groups, not to date myself, but I remember Usenet groups in like 1991. I think at night, by the time we got to 1996, not too many people were using them. Anyway. Remember, this is Hollywood's interpretation of technology, not necessarily the actual technology. Right. Which we're going to get into all over this. So especially oh. right here. So he's on the, these Usenet groups trying to email this Max character 
which it just seems kind of crazy that he's just randomly shooting out email. He's just creating this this email address for this person. <laughs> like, like he just puts in anything and it's going to get there. So, <laughs> so, but that's what he's doing. He's basically he just did it in German. And all the emails that he's sending out, it's just so funny to see the screen, the actual interface. It's also very AOL. Yes. Big, giant type, just clunky 8-bit, horrible <laughs> graphics, giant, large type as he's typing it. But yeah, it is funny that he's, he's going on these different Bible Usenet groups and whatever. It's just, it's silly. But of course, you know, it works because movies. Right. So he stays up all night and he's looking really delirious at this point. And then you realize, uh, well, you don't right away, but he basically has drifted asleep at the computer and he starts dreaming that Phelps has stumbled in bloody And just as Phelps touches his shoulder with his hand, with his bloody hand, it fades into Claire's hand, who has come back to the safe house. And then we get this little standoff. That moment is terrible, by the way. That drift from his dream to Claire is so Mm -hmm. unclear. It's it's just so poorly done. Like, well, and. I have to take at this point one of the peeves that I had during the uh, the briefing session at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, Phelps like so. Oh, four hundred. That's four o'clock, right? Like anybody that's had any a modicum of whatever, even been in Europe, knows what oh four hundred is, right? Yeah, they spent so much time clarifying that so that she could do this and this thing. Chips had to come back at four o'clock. Oh, four hundred. Yeah. Four o'clock. As if the people watching the movie were too stupid to understand yeah. that oh four hundred. Was four o'clock. Yeah. I'm just like, are you serious? Yeah. It's not like we were going, you know, two o'clock, 1400. 0400 is four o'clock. They really bludgeon you (laughs) over the head with that. So, yeah, she's like, oh, we're supposed to be back here at 0400 or whatever. And that scene is, again, another creepy weird moment where Mm -hmm. he's checking her for bugs or guns or weapons or whatever. Very gropey, very like, I didn't feel... And it shows her down on the bed. Yeah, and and they're just face to, like, very, very close to each other, like, faces and... So anyway, uh, so later that morning, (laughs) Ethan theorizes that Job is the mole and that it's Job, not Job, because he sees the Bible on the on the shelf. And he's Mm -hmm. this is how he he makes perfect Job 314. It's a verse in the Bible and that Job is the mole. He's a person. And Ethan is theorizing that he's going to get the list to try and lure the mole out. And then, of course, just then he gets a hit on one of his. One of his emails, hey, Mm -hmm. just in time to keep this plot moving. So so one of the emails comes back and a meeting is set up to meet with Max. Ethan goes through the whole old school meetup tactics of asking for a match and a certain place. And then he gets thrown in a car and they put a hood on him, a really goofy looking hood. Um, What was that all about? Yeah, I don't know. It just, that part seemed completely unnecessary like it was so Mm -hmm. especially since there was no payoff once he gets to see max he convinces them to take the mask off it's just like oh well okay (laughs) Eh. moving on Eh. so anyway so he takes off the mask and max is a woman to quote roger moore a woman (laughs) 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 Um, and 
From here, we get some nice back and forth, weirdly sexual tension between Vanessa Redgrave and Tom Cruise. Um, Ethan asks for 150 grand in startup money to obtain the real knock list. He explains that the one that they obtained was part of a setup to root out a mole and is surely bogus and probably comes with a homing device. And she doesn't believe him. And he's like, if you look it up, you're going to see some Virginia farm boys showing up in about 10 minutes from now or five, whatever, two Mm -hmm. minutes from now. And of course, Max calls his bluff or it's not even a bluff. It's legitimate. And I I do like the little line he says where he's like, well, if if you're going to do this, make sure you pack first. (laughs) Right. So, you know, it's funny. He's the most Tom Cruise in that scene that he is in the entire movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's when he turns on that smile and the the cruisy. Yeah. 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 I'm a little crazy behind my eyes, but I I'm a think, good actor. <laughs> well, I think that's what adds to that that sexual vibe between him and Vanessa mm-hmm. Redgrave is because he does turn mm-hmm. on that Tom Cruisiness yes. of that era. So yeah, she boots up the disc. Zip disc, by the way. Thought that was funny. Uh-huh. And they're they're checking out the this part is just sort of like mumbo jumbo where they're just sort of checking out the validity of of the list or whatever. And and right. meanwhile, Max's henchman or whatever you want to call him, the uh, the Viking looking Hans, dude, Hans Gruber's cousin Hans with the Gruber. trench coat. Yeah, Hans Gruber's cousin goes outside, and sure enough, he sees that there's a big white van that pulls up, and there's guys in white coats jumping out. White trench coats, I might add. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. So then you have sort of this merging of time where they're testing the validity of the disc while you also see the guys raiding the safe house. And obviously by the time they get up there, they've already left and they're in the car. And then we get that really fun, another fun Kittredge moment when they're up there and they're like, what are you going to do? Put a guy at the airport? Well, don't discount the fact you you have to look at the scene. Kittredge is wearing a London Fog trench coat and yeah. a fedora oh my God. in 1996. <laughs> it's so it was like the Palma had some leftover stuff for the Untouchables. Yeah, we just throw this in a wardrobe. I always want. I love seeing guys in fedora hats and trench coats. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I'm like, what pop culture person is even wearing like Michael Jackson? Is he like, a, like a little bit of smooth criminal thrown in there. I was like, what is? Who's wearing a fedora in 1996? So nobody. Yeah. Harrison Ford. And even he wasn't <laughs> wearing it then. Right. So. Kittredge had that good line. I cut you off. You were telling the, the, the line about the airport. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. he's he totally sells it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he is so good in this. I'm so glad they're bringing him back. Like, we need some of that tongue-in-cheek sort of thing. Because the, the Mission Impossible movies at this point are definitely getting close to being too serious. And to yes. add back in Kittredge is going to add that little charming wink, wink, nod, nod type thing to to the, the upcoming movies. Yeah. So cut back to Ethan and Max. They're in the limo. They're flirting again. She's now impressed that he was right. So they negotiate the deal. And Ethan wants $10 million now, as well as an introduction to Job. And he gets it. And he comes back to the safe house and Claire's there. He tells her about the deal and that now he needs a team. So then we cut to the train and we see Luther. We see Luther (laughs) and we see Krieger. And Ethan is explaining that he basically wants to break into CIA headquarters to get the real knock list. And they talk about how to get it and how 
impossible it is. <laughs> uh, and I will say this whole scene, even though this scene predates Ocean's Eleven, this has an <laughs> extremely Ocean's Eleven vibe. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. About all the things they have to get past, which they can't get past. And I also <laughs> like how they sort of, with both Ving Rhames' character and Reno's character, how they sort of do this sort of taunting them, like, what, you're not the master encryptionist, uh, and you're not the, the master of getting things that nobody else can get? What? Right. You can't do this? Did we come to the wrong people? That whole right. thing. But I kind of liked it also <laughs> in another way. <laughs> but anyway, it's just funny to me how once they start talking about the equipment they would need, I was <laughs> laughing so hard when Luther starts drooling over a prototype 686 with an AI protection, blah, 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 blah. I was like, uh -huh. 686. I had a friend who actually had a 586. And that was 1994. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so, but it sounded convincing in 96, right? In 96, it probably sounded very convincing. Now it just is hilarious. It sounds like garbage. Yeah. <laughs> so we get the breakdown of the room that they can't break into. And they're trying to get into, yeah, this room that's voice encrypted with, you know, voice recognition and eye retina scan and double electronic key card, not to mention inside the room, we've got pressure sensitive floor and a temperature monitor and a sound detector. Mm -hmm. And then we get the, and you think we can do this? And then he's like, we're going to do it. So, ha ha. Yeah. Cause I'm Tom Cruise. <laughs> That's right. So now we get to cue the mission impossible theme music. Music starts blaring away, and we see fire trucks rolling towards the CIA headquarters. Uh, you would think that the CIA probably has their own fire brigade. Um, yeah, kind of like what really? I mean, it's the huge campus, you know, that they set. That I think they share it with the FBI and some other uh, people out there. You'd think they'd have an in-house fire department, yeah, uh, so that they could have people that were already cleared as firefighters come into their building. Yeah, and it's a little suspicious that just any old firefighter can just walk right into the front door. No, uh -huh. nobody is stopping him. They're literally running into the CIA building. Right. <laughs> with one uniformed security guard with a small automatic weapon, yeah. taking them wherever they need to go. Sure. So, okay, we get, it's a movie. We got to move it along. I, I get it. But uh, I think it feels like kind of a cop out. Like somebody just like, can't figure out how to get them in the building. Yeah. Don't we make masks? Yeah, we make masks. No, we can't do that. Well, and here's the other thing. I If you just watch it from an editing perspective, this area is cut super, super fast and a lot of shit happens really, really quickly. And it's yes. because this is obviously the huge weakness in this plot. This is the major plot hole and they're trying to kind of just shuttle you past it so that you don't notice how bonkers and ridiculous this part of it is, that there's no way any right. of this part of it would happen. There's no way that the firemen would just come out from the local <laughs> wherever and just walk right into the CIA headquarters, get right past security. And of course, Ving Rhames has already hacked into the entire building security system right. from, a, from a fire truck. This is my biggest problem. He's doing it from the fire truck. Yeah. How did he get in? And he literally said on the train that he would have to be on the premise to be able to hack into it. Right, which I could assume in the fire truck, he's in the vicinity. Yeah, and granted he's talking about 
the building. He's not talking about the mainframe that holds the list, but still. Right. <laughs> but how much um, Ethernet uh, computing were we doing in 1996? Yeah. How much Wi-Fi was there? Yeah, zero. <laughs> so that's the thing that kind of bothers me about this is his character should have had to have been someplace where he was hooked in to the internet via yes. a wire right. to do what he needed to do, or at the very least a phone line through a modem. Yeah. He should have been brought in, whether he was in disguise or otherwise, they should have made up something for him to go into the building and hide somewhere. Right. If nothing else, they could have showed a scene where they're in the hotel and he set some sort of a timer to set the fire alarm off so that that gets him into the building. And then he sneaks in with the, it's four of them instead of three of them. Right. He sneaks in to get into the mainframe or someplace where he could just get a computer terminal. Mm -hmm. And then he's working from there. You could have added an extra element of suspense to it. Absolutely. And maybe putting him in a... An empty cubicle where he's wearing a suit and everybody goes walking by him and like, are you new here? Oh, yeah, I just uh, transferred from the Arby's division or something <laughs> like that, right? Um, <laughs> the whole part of this, th this whole thing is so implausible from the beginning to the end that I guess you just have to suspend your disbelief of it. Yeah. But, I mean... He uses his mad skills. This is heightened reality to the yeah. nth degree. You have to suspend disbelief and just run with it till the end. That's it. Mm -hmm. So he gets the alarms going off. Um, he manages to get the alarm to the room, the area they need to get into off as they're waiting for it to happen. But nobody's suspicious about that at all. Yeah. We need to get to 21. Oh, 21 just went off. No wonder you guys are sitting in uniforms behind a desk <laughs> and not working for the CIA for real. <laughs> Yeah. So Ethan, Claire, and Krieger, they're all dressed up as firefighters to go inspect the fire that's on Section 21 all right. of a sudden. Like everybody wouldn't know about it already. or Right. So <laughs> here's the thing that confuses me. Aside from the fact that nobody's evacuating the building, there are a significant number of people standing in the hallway of CIA. Chit-chatting. Yes. And I'm like, this doesn't feel like this happens in the CIA. <laughs> I feel like everybody works in their own little cubicles and nobody talks about nothing because yeah. you're dealing with it's sensitive the CIA. material. <laughs> exactly. But meanwhile, they go running by and they literally walk past a group of three women that are talking in a corner when mm. Claire disappears into the door. Nobody says anything. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, she goes to get in there to change her clothes so that uh, she can go uh, take care of the CAA dude that runs the, the computer that they're trying to break into. And just to add to the completely unrealistic nature of this whole scene, the fact that she gets into this spectacular red dress. Yes. Or this, you know, heaven forbid that she wears an earth tone or something black that yeah. doesn't that draw... Prevents? That doesn't draw attention to herself. Exactly. There might have been some reason for that. They certainly did not explain it, other than she no. looked fabulous. She does. But um, she looks great. She does. So Ethan and Krieger, they get into a kind of a janitor closet, something to get access to the vent system. A security guard that walks them in there goes. He gets halfway through and realizes, hey, there were three of them. Where's number three? Oh, I wonder. Yeah. <laughs> we wonder where that guy is. Goes back in to ask, and then Krieger gives him the old hi-ya, why-ya, kick you, sir. And then tries to stabby, exactly. Stabby, stabby with a knife. Watch the knife. Look at the knife. Very first acty. I don't know. Uh, and Cruz is like, no killing. And Krieger's like, I'm the professional. Oh, wait, wrong movie. And where is Matilda? 
anyway, so we stop that. Um, we see the guy come out of the computer room. He goes over to on his break because even at the CAA, you got to get your mandated 15 in, right? That's right. Uh, <laughs> he gets a cup of coffee, sits down in the cafeteria. In comes Claire. She sits right next to him. And, I mean, right next to him in the cafeteria in comes the hottest woman in the cafeteria that no yeah. one's ever seen before in a red dress in a red dress and you're just you know fine just reading your newspaper doing your crossword you're just not even bothered it's not even going to distract you it's only mm-hmm. the hottest woman you've ever seen in like the last year <laughs> sitting uncomfortably close yeah, if she sat right next to me and there were plenty of other open seats around, I'd be like, is this, I'm feeling vibe and she hasn't even said anything. <laughs> exactly. If I'm in a lunchroom and one of my colleagues comes over and sits that close to him, I'm like, well, you need to back it up a sec or two <laughs> yeah. there, buddy. I, sit across. Sit, yeah, this, there's a chair this, right there. Go sit across. uncomfortable. <laughs> And I mean, you know, maybe she's used to things being uncomfortable with Ethan and her husband, (laughs) the creepy rapiness of the whole thing. Mm. I don't know. But uh, I mean, she successfully manages to get that one squirt of sick in his coffee. Liquid sick, man. uh, Does it every time. And then she, you know, plugs on the Viridian patch from Star Trek Six, you know, so that they could track (laughs) him halfway across the galaxy. But and it's funny. He almost notices she does that. They do have that scene where he kind of looks at her after she yeah. touches it. I'm like, oh, guess you're not as good at your job as you think you are, Claire. <laughs> Come <laughs> on, Claire. Also, yeah, way to go, Claire. It's just, it's just, it's unfortunate name. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, well, it goes back to your Breakfast Club analogy, right? You had to have a Claire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll let the uh, audience figure that one out on their own, but uh, yeah. <laughs> She ain't going to be named Claire. Uh, I'm just saying. No, not with that French accent. She's not. Anyway, so while they're going through all this, the boys are getting ready to climb into the air ducts. We go to Kittredge and, uh, you know, he's discussing the fact that Ethan's hired a team to do something. But what is he going to do? And I then wonder. They, I can't imagine. There's a fire alarm going off. You point it out to your dude. The dude's like, it's a fire alarm. And he's like, <laughs> do we have to evacuate? <laughs> I'm so annoyed. Yeah. I love the Kittredge being that way in most scenes, but this one is just like, do we have to evacuate? What are you, Paul Lynn? Do we have to evacuate? Mm? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So we queue up to uh, Ethan and Krieger crawling through the air ducts. And can I just take a moment to say that I hate this thing more than anything else in movies of this nature. I know that they make air ducts big enough for what Tom Cruise is actually sized. But not for actual human beings that that are taller than five foot two? Yes. Jean Reno is not going to fit in an air duct. <laughs> yeah. Let alone is it going to support both of their weight? Let alone, I mean. While they're using giant magnets to scale it vertically. Correct. Which I'm going to tell you right now, most of those ducks are probably aluminum. And they would just tear. Right. Well, they wouldn't tear. It's not magnetic. Magnets don't work. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> but, you know, I'll suspend disbelief again. I run a spy podcast and I didn't realize that aluminum isn't magnetized to magnets. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Actually, and I don't know if those particular things were magnetic or if they were air suction. Because I think uh, those are the same kind of things they use to pull glass. Oh, right, You right, put them right. in and you twist it and it makes a suction thing. So that would work on aluminum. Okay, well, maybe it's that. <laughs> we're going to go with that. Okay. Go with that. Sure. Okay. So they get into the air ducts and I don't know. It, 
The whole thing of climbing up into the air duct seemed like it took so much more effort than it needed to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know that the ceiling in that room is very high, but right. they do a lot of cutting back and forth to all these different things going on. And, you know, just because supposedly it's this long, you know, Lord of the Rings length journey to the top of the air duct. Right. <laughs> where the lasers are. Right. Well, and then you have to, you know, the funny part is, is as high as that room is, they had to have gone up, what, three stories? Oh, yeah. Up in the air duct to get where they were at. Unless you're assuming that they were on the floor below. I didn't, they didn't really explain that very well. Nope. But it didn't feel like they had to go up at all to get to where they needed to go back down again. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I just know it, it's all very, very silly. <laughs> so they get past the laser diversion. They start yeah. unscrewing the, the panel to get into where they yeah. need to go. Okay, hold up, though. <laughs> first of all, first of all, the laser diversion device is silly. I just find it interesting that it's sized exactly to the size of that air vent. Like they knew exactly how big that air vent was and exactly the dimensions of the square that those lasers were guarding. Mm-hmm. The, well, of course you know. they did because it's it's measured in cruises. <laughs> so between that and the magnetic screwdriver, the touchless magnetic screwdriver, I was like, mm-hmm. That doesn't exist. That's not a real thing. Well, well neither does bubble gum that uh, you put together and turns into a squishy bomb. But this is you know, true. Okay, just got to run with it. Okay, <laughs> like <laughs> seems impossible. It is Mission Impossible, so uh, yeah, yeah, just okay. it, it's kind of in the name. Yeah. All right. um, <laughs> so they set up this this very elaborate rigging for the rope, which spoiler alert doesn't hold teeny tiny Tom Cruise's weight after all. <laughs> they do a little monitor test, which honestly, I just check, check, check one, check toast, two. Toast. Sibidence. <laughs> toast. The toast. human torch we, was denied a bank loan. <laughs> <laughs> the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. <laughs> Testing. We have the meats. Um, <laughs> probably the most plausible tool that they had was some sort of a sound meter that did exactly what it, it did. Right? right. But I don't feel like this is the most implausible thing for me for this whole thing is that they could possibly do this without making any sound at all. Yeah. No matter how you baffle the rigging, everything, it seems like they should have had something that just canceled out the sound. Yeah. Well, isn't that what they did for the, uh, for the temperature? Didn't they put some sort of weird little thing on top of the thermostat to sort of offset what the computer was reading out? Yeah. Exactly, but couldn't do anything about sound, so so much for technology, I guess. So they're testing out the audio monitor. They get everything set up. Ethan goes down on the the spinny round cradle that got used in every commercial for the three years preceding this movie (laughs) while people are trying to get toilet paper and and picking up fruit (laughs) from their supermarket on one of these rigs. And just as they're doing it, and comes back Mr. Donlow to do his own thing because the sick juice hasn't started working yet. Right. And so Krieger's got to pull Tom back up. So he's just dangling overhead. Right. <laughs> now, I want to point out something that I saw on my second reviewing of this movie. Oh, okay. If you look at the floor when the lights are turned off, it's uh-huh. all reflective. So, of course, he would have seen him. Right. Now, I get that you don't. nobody looks up. Right. But everybody you, looks down. Unless, Right. Unless you've managed a warehouse in your lifetime, you never look up, you only look down. Yeah. And so it seems implausible to me that he wouldn't have noticed, if nothing else, movement from the reflection. 
Yeah. Even if it was just minor, like twisting or turning, yeah. like as he's dangled there. Right. So I suppose you could chalk it up to him starting to, his tummy starting to get a little rumbly. Um, <laughs> he's a little distracted. He's a little distracted. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just, I don't buy it. I don't yeah. buy it at all. But yeah. it, it works, you know. He starts yeah. getting all sick, throws up in the jar or the, the basket, which he then takes with him, which is a very, very nice touch. Yeah, very polite. You know, well, it, he's going to come back in. He's not going to want to smell that puke anyway. So well, I mean, It's just going to make him puke again. Yeah, ugh, we don't want that. <laughs> um, so, so he goes back out the door to go do his business in the bathroom that conveniently is right across the way. That's very, yeah. very good for him. Yeah. Either goes back down, does his little spinny, twisty ninja stuff. Yes, fancy acrobatics. A fun fact on that one: apparently, Tom Cruise kept hitting his head um, because he couldn't get the balance right. Oh, on that, like on cradle. that stick, that stick that sort yeah. of goes across it. Really? Yeah. So he figured out the way to fix it. He needed to counterbalance his feet, and so they loaded up his shoes full of coins. Are you serious? Until he got balanced. Yeah. Oh wow. Because that's Tom Cruise. He's he's fully involved. Oh Tom. <laughs> yeah, I think you know when I was in Top Gun, they put quarters <laughs> in my boots to make me taller. What if we put quarters in my shoes to balance me out? It's an amazing, amazing idea, Tom Cruise. It's either that or a kiss boot. Yeah. Oh, do we have kiss boots? <laughs> <laughs> So he goes down on the cradle, gets to work. He puts the thing to baffle the thermometer up on its station, starts getting to work with doing his thing. I find it funny how easy it is for him to navigate to where the knock list is. It's just right there, the big icon on right. the screen. Right. The other thing that's like completely implausible is how does Luther already know what the password is? Yeah, they don't really explain that very much. No. But he's a hacker and he's got that 686 uh, processing chip with the AI protection. So oh, well, th that does everything. So, okay. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so after doing some little toe-tapping uh, balancing act on the uh, desk for the computer, mm -hmm. uh, Ethan gets in there, he puts it in there, finds that knock list right where it should be under knock list. <laughs> because if they're going to go through the trouble of computerizing the names of people that can get them all killed, let's make sure we put an icon right where it is so you can find it when you break in. Well titled. Let's not bury it in a directory somewhere in DOS where you really have to look for it. Yeah. With a completely different name, which is what the CIA would have done anyway. No, no, no. Knock list. Big thumbnail for it, too. <laughs> Just go ahead and click. Now, I will tell you this. Out of all the nonsense in that scene, that list downloading actually took about as much time as it would take to download a list in real time. Very true. Very true. A lot of times you're waiting and waiting because it builds up drama and suspense. One thing I did catch on that second go round two was the fact that Ethan had the two CD-ROMs. Yes. Not yes. one. I didn't catch that before. I was like, mm. where did the second one even come from? And then I watched it the right. first time. I'm like, oh, there it is. And he lost his place because he almost he had to get out in such a hurry. He forgot which one. This will play in later, kids. Yeah. When I did see that, like it was such a head scratcher. I'm like, well, why does he have a second one there? I should have known that it's like, oh, well, this is setting something up for something later. Right. Well, yeah, but it's a subtle piece of business. Yeah. It's a little annoying that you just put that in there just to pay it off. There's no actual use for it during the part well, when no. you see it first. You know what I mean? I think that the whole reason he had it in there was he was planning on doing a bait and switch on Krieger uh, when he got up. Gotcha. But he didn't have enough time. Right. So he gets it in there. Meanwhile, Captain Sick goes and vomits a couple more times, comes <laughs> back in. Like, this is the most diligent employee at CIA. I mean, if I had thrown up three times in 10 minutes. Going home. 
I'm going home, right? Yeah. The CIA would probably make this guy go home because of what he's doing, right? Yeah. Nope. Goes back in. I feel fine now. And so, you know, Lucy's like, he's coming. And they're like, oh, crap. And, you know, it's a race to the finish at the end. The mm-hmm. one bit of business, though, at the end of that, Krieger was going to kill Ethan when he came back up. That's why he had the knife out. Ah. And I didn't catch that on that first, the first viewing. But he says something. That and I, I wish I should have played it again before we did the podcast. But he says something that almost like a goodbye, Ethan, or something like that. Just as he has the knife out, I didn't catch that. Yeah, so I think he was going to kill Ethan and just leave him there because they think he's the mole anyway. He could have dumped him off the CIA and he'd taken the fall for it. Wow. But uh, yeah, and in that mm. moment, Cruz gives him the wrong disc because well, no, he gives him the right disc. He gives him the knock. Well, yeah, it gives him, yeah, that's right. He gives him the well, I meant the wrong disc. He'd give him the disc he wanted to give him. That's what right, I meant. Right, 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 right. Yeah, the right wrong disc. The right, right. wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> I did forget about the sweat drop, which really, really bothered me. Because there was that mouse up in the air duct. And so he drops him to the floor and he's like an yep. inch above the floor. And then you get that yep. shot, the iconic shot of the sweat on the lens of his glasses. And then he catches it in his hand. And Right. So the two problems with that is why is there a rat in the air ducts at CIA. Not going to happen. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of rats working on the floor, but I don't think there's going to have any in there. And it, it, they intimate that Krieger kills it with his teeth, which is even better because <laughs> it's laying dead behind him yeah. after the fact. I th- well, you know, I didn't even realize he, the implication was that he bit him. I thought he like headbutted the rat or something. Who knows? Maybe. I there was know. something happening with his head for sure. But here's the thing. If you're going to go into a temperature controlled room where the slightest bit of vibration is going to set something off, wouldn't you wear something to keep yourself from sweating off of your head? Yeah. You're going to be nervous. You're going to do it regardless of how warm or cold it is in there. So why wasn't he wearing a baklava or something or a headband or something to keep it from happening? Mythbusters say busted. Busted. So anyway, he gets up there. Krieger doesn't kill him because everything is going south, but his knife does fall into the desk mm. perfectly, I might add. Yes. Doesn't drop, doesn't clatter. And it lands just as the door opens and disengages the sound monitor. Right, just- right. <laughs> and so despite the fact that there's a fire at the CIA, we now know there's a breach People are still getting out of the building without armed security stopping them. (laughs) Everybody gets back into their fire department clothes. They all go out in the fire engine, into the ambulance, and they all drive off into the sunset. Make their way all the way to London. (laughs) Meanwhile, Luther's like, I don't think I like this knockless business. It's a look on his face as they're driving away. Yeah. But... They've got the list. Meanwhile, at the very end of this, you show Kittred finding out how has found out what has happened. And he looks at his white-haired compatriot Barnes. And <laughs> oh my what should God. we do about what should we do about Donlow? I want him manning a radar tower in Alaska by the end of the day. Just mail him his clothes. <laughs> Such a great line. It is so good. Uh, so the team managed to get to London, which in that scene, I would have bet a hundred bucks that that was a, someplace in Prague that they just England up because it was so bad. Here's yeah. a London underground. Here's the word London. Here's a double decker bus. There's another thing across the street. Here's sure Liverpool enough, Street. Right. It's real. They filmed it there. Yeah. At Liverpool Street Station. According to IMDb, that was real. England. Englishing it up. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. I mean, I guess England can make fun of itself 
<laughs> yeah, so it's legit. Uh, Ethan contacts Max, set up the exchange for the disc for the money. But then uh, Ethan is uh, watching the TV. Well, he's not watching the TV. Claire's watching the TV. Brings him in to, to look at a news broadcast where he sees that uh, his mother and his uncle have been arrested for, <laughs> although I think they meant it to be meth, but they made up something that's not real. Cat? It yeah, it might as well be meth. And this is Kittredge's way to try and get uh, Ethan Hunt out of hiding so that he can figure out where he's at and get him caught. It's like, I'm going after the family. And so Ethan's like, all right, well, that's fine. I'm, I'm going to go get a phone and I'm going to go call you and I'm going to taunt you just long enough for you to not figure out where I am, except almost where I am because yeah. I need you here. Right. right. And I mean, Cruz has a very good cruise line in that where he's like, do you think that a man <laughs> who just murdered his entire team is going to care whether you move old Uncle Donald and mom across on the news. You know? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he's clearly playing. He wants uh, he wants Kittredge to know that he's in London because he wants Kittredge in London right. um, to set up his master plan because he has figured out at this point who Job is. Has he figured oh, wait, that out? Oh, wait. He, yes, you're right. Because right before this, he sees the stamp in the Bible. Right. And knows it's from the Drake Hotel that he was in. So he starts putting two and two together. I did fast up on the part where he, Krieger has the disc and he does the Tom Cruise magic show, which <laughs> happens shortly, bef shortly before uh, Claire shows him about that. But um, you show uh, Cruise emailing Max, I'm guessing, again. Right. And Krieger's trying to get his attention like, hey, Dad, hey, Dad, hey, Dad. <laughs> Hey, dad, hey, dad, 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 dad. And Tom Cruise is like, I'm not having anything to do with it until Krieger knocks the Bible he's trying to quote from off the desk and has a little temper tantrum. Right. And tells him, I, you're not going anywhere without me because I have the disc. Ha, 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 ha. I and should Cruise not like, be taking orders from you. You're right. And then Ethan's all like, oh, crap. Forgot about that. He's like, you think I gave you the disc? You think that's a real disc? Here, look at me do some party tricks. Where did it go? Where did it? Oh, oh, it's right back behind here where I can reach creepily behind Claire's back. Here it is. Here it is. Right? Another creepy moment. Yeah. And you know, so he goes through all this bait and switch on him. Krieger gets pissed off, storms out, throws the disc in the trash. And you think it's over with. Ends up going over to the trash can, pulling out the disc and handing it to Luther. Luther's like, oh, you had the real one the whole time? And he's like, yeah, I, I pretty much screwed up, but I'm not going to tell you that. But I trust you to hold this, Luther, <laughs> because if you'd known this was happening, you wouldn't have done it in the first place. Yeah. Trust. Although you will notice, too, that he doesn't take it out of the trash until Claire has left the room because he doesn't yes. trust Claire at this point. Because he knows she might be in on it. Right. And she sort of buttons up that scene, too, being all like touchy, touchy, feely, feely with him after Krieger leaves the room. She's like, I'm right. sorry. I was the one that found him for you. Touchy, touchy. Right. Hmm. Well, call me. I, <laughs> I exactly. I can't believe I just watched this yesterday, but I, this whole scene to me is just because there's that montage where he sees the Drake Hotel and he starts visualizing how everything worked. Yeah. And then he eliminates Claire from first, he incriminates Claire as the one who blew up the car. Right. Then eliminates Claire because now, no, he could have done it himself. Right. Type of deal. Right. But yeah, so long story short, Cruz does magic. <laughs> Claire shows him what's happening. He goes down, taunts Kitteridge. Just as he's getting done taunting Kitteridge, in comes Jim Phelps with a sling right next to him on the phone with right. a trench coat and a hat because he's a spy. <laughs> it's like he oh. might as well be wearing a T-shirt that says, 
I'm a spy. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so he, he engages Ethan. Ethan's like, oh, you're alive. And here's some of the best Tom Cruise acting ever. He was definitely conveying, I know something about you, but playing along with it very, right. very well. And I do like how, as Phelps is trying to sell Ethan on Kittredge being the mole, Ethan is imagining in his mind Phelps the mole doing these things. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a cool thing that they did there where even though Phelps is trying to say that it's Kittredge, Ethan is already thinking in his mind, no, you did all this shit. Right. Well, and then Phelps goes and tells him, yeah, you know, what does he say? He's like, the new president doesn't listen to you. And, you know, you're going to failing marriage and 62,000 a year. No, you seem to know Kittredge very well. It seems very specific, Jim. <laughs> Projection much? <laughs> yeah, I didn't know you and Kittredge were such good friends. But, you know, for the sake of setting up the fall for everybody, Ethan goes along with it. And, you know, Jim's like, oh, uh, I think it's better if we don't tell Claire or anyone else uh, Keep it on the down low. This time. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You're totally right. You're totally right. That's fine. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back up to the hotel we're staying in. I'm gonna go fuck your wife. Because <laughs> that's clearly what they do. Yeah. Well, whole, you know. I'm in the corner. Here's my hand. Take me, Jack. Take me. <laughs> Fade to black. <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyway, so along with uh, other things that he's realizing, you know, he goes through the whole play. He realizes that. Krieger's knife is the knife that killed Kristen Scott Thomas's character. Yeah, Sarah. Uh, he just he's making he's making all the connections and everything. So he gets to the point where at the by the end of the scene, he knows what's happening. He's got yeah. a plan formulated. It's all going to come down to it, and he's going to save the day because he's because Tom Cruise. That's he's Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise and that's what that's what Tom Cruise does, man. He saves right. things. <laughs> Right, exactly. So they're basically getting ready. You set up the meet with Max on now. Was it the channel? Is that the channel that they're actually going the under, or is it just a tunnel? It okay. is the channel. Um, so it's a high speed train. It's going in there. They do it because you know you're not going to have internet access because you shouldn't have internet access on Wi Fi in 1996. <laughs> but definitely not at a train that's underwater. Um, and, and so that's where we're setting up the meet. Even though Luther's got some cool phones to jam you anyway. That's right. That badass Nokia semi-brick phone from 1996. Woo! <laughs> Which I believe brings us into Act 3 of this. Thank thing. God. So, the next day, we see Kittredge arrive in London. And this is... This little moment right here, when he first arrives and he's at the London Bridge, I'm still a little confused, and maybe you can clear this up for me. Whereas as soon as he gets out of the helicopter or whatever he's in, they give him this envelope, and it's got he's got train tickets, he's got a thing that says noon, and he's got this the watch thing that's got the video screen on mm -hmm. it or whatever. Ethan has obviously sent this, but I'm I was like struggling to figure out how this got into the hands of Kittredge and when did all this happen? You know what I mean? It was, it, they, and it's very quick. It's like they just kind of throw this at you, and then within thirty seconds, you're you're off. And well, there was some brief explanation about that when the uh, English agent brings in the envelope and he mm -hmm. says that it's been thoroughly swept and checked for blah 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 blah. But oh, okay. I don't know that that he stated how they got it. I mean, we don't know that this is literally the next day. It's possible this was a couple days later, right? Um, okay. And 
Ethan had some time to set stuff up because he knew he was coming. Sure. But even if, well, we know Kitteridge was in Langley when they left. So unless Kitteridge got on an airplane as soon as they did to get to London, right? which I doubt because they didn't know he was in London, they needed right. to give Kitteridge at least half a day to get there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, he gets the watch like device and he gets the the train tickets and the time to be there and all the things he needs. So at that point, you know, Kittredge is like racing to get on the train where Max and Ethan are meeting and we cut to the train moving along real fast. And we see Max and her assistant on the train and they get a call from Ethan who lets her know that the disc is under her seat. So that's convenient. So the knock list is under her seat. In the meantime, we see a pair of hands assembling some sort of weird gun. You sort of assume it's Phelps based on the jacket. Cut back to Max and the list comes up as matching the code names to the real names and she's all Twitter-pated. She makes another flirty, flirty remark to Ethan about meeting him in private lets him know which briefcase in the baggage car the money is in. Uh, then we see Kittredge and his men moving through the cars looking for Ethan. Then we see Max's assistant again, and he can't connect to the internet because Luther is just over his shoulder with his little fancy jamming device on the Nokia brick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it keeps the information local on her computer, at least for the time being. Luther then sees that Kittredge is headed for his car and he gets up to try and hide, but he leaves the phone gadget behind to keep jamming the internet. But then of course, some good natured train steward notices that he left, oh, you've left left your phone. Here's your phone. You forgot your phone. So foils him. (laughs) And just when that happens, everybody uh, starts losing their phone signal in the section where Luther's phone suddenly is and the blonde guy gets smart mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, the, the Viking guy, he uh, he gets smart to it and he so he starts following Luther. And then Luther goes and hides in the bathroom. <laughs> right. And then suddenly the internet returns for Max and they start sending the list. And of course, since it's 19, 1996 internet, it's taking a very long time to send. Max then <laughs> call, makes a quick call to Job quote unquote Job, and lets Phelps know that Ethan's in the baggage car. Then Claire calls Ethan and lets him know Kittredge is on the train. Ethan says to meet him in the baggage car and that he's right behind her. So now we've got this meetup at the at the baggage car. A lot of stuff starts happening very quickly. Claire is making her way to the baggage car. She passes right by Kittredge. I'm not even sure if he identifies Claire or if she's just hot enough to distract oh. him. <laughs> no, no, no. He identified her because she's hot. I yeah. think he looked at her and was like, that's Claire's ass. <laughs> Probably. I, I, that's the total of the vibe I got was like, hey, I know that. That's Claire's ass. <laughs> well, I was of two minds because you've got Claire's ass walking by. And then you've also got the blonde guy trying to break into the bathroom where Luther's hiding. Right. Um, so there's all this commotion at that end of the car. So then right. Kittredge starts making his way down that way. The blonde guy sees Kittredge and realizes he has to get the hell out of there. And right. so so Claire, both Claire and the blonde guy move to the next car. And then Kittredge's right-hand man starts trying to break into the bathroom. Meanwhile, then suddenly we see Claire enter the baggage car and tells who she thinks is Phelps that Ethan will be there shortly. And then, you know, Claire's trying to convince, quote unquote, Jim, that they don't need to kill Ethan, just steal the money and run and let Ethan take the blame. And that's when, of course, Ethan takes the big rubber mask off that's very realistic in this scene, extremely realistic 
rubber mask of Phelps. And suddenly it's Ethan and she realizes the jig's up. And then that's also when the real Jim comes out of the shadows with a gun and Jim asks when Ethan knew it was him and he brings up the stamp Bible. So then we sort of mm-hmm. figure everything, you know, it sort of clarifies things for the viewer. And it also becomes apparent that the only reason Ethan is risking wearing a mask and going head to head with Jim at all is to find out whether or not Claire was involved with any of this. And then as Ethan is forced to give Claire the money, he goes, you earned it. So I guess we know uh, yeah. whether they consummated that icky end of the love triangle. So anyway, uh, <laughs> then Ethan lets Phelps know that he's wrong about one thing. And that's when he pulls the pair of glasses out of his pocket and puts them on. Hmm. And he's like, now I'm not the only person that's seen you alive. And Kittredge, of course, in a very timely matter, looks right at his screen at that exact moment and sees mm-hmm. that, and sees that Phelps is still alive. Hello, Jim. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> From here, we get this weird little scuffle fight. And in the chaos, Claire gets shot and Ethan gets knocked out briefly, very briefly, because he wakes up almost instantaneously afterwards. He's more stunned than knocked out. Yeah, more say. just stunned. So, so then Phelps takes the money and heads up to the top of the train where he's supposed to get picked up by a helicopter piloted by Krieger. And this is where they truly jump the shark. This last scene, you know, I imagine when this, when they were making this movie, they were like, we need something that's going to top the computer room scene. What can we do? And instead of thinking rationally, they picked the most ludicrous idea in the world of someone being able to fly a helicopter inside the tunnel without crashing it, which is literally, and, and keeping pace with a super train in the process. Right. So not only flying it, but flying it super fast. Yeah, because that's going to happen. So anyway. <laughs> So, and then what might be even more ridiculous than that is suddenly Ethan is super distraught over this girl. He didn't really seem to care that much about during this movie, other than maybe he wanted to sleep with her. Which he did. (laughs) Which he did. Mission Um, impossible? Mission accomplished. (laughs) So... So from there, he's so distraught over this that he's going to get up on top of this train and stop Jim and Krieger, despite the fact that they've already got Max, they've already, the list is now contained, they can always go after Jim at some later time. Claire Mm -hmm. has been found out and shot dead, so there's nothing there. But no, he's going to risk life and limb, and so he gets up on top of the train, and the super train, and it's going like a gazillion miles an hour, and I'm sure they sort of sped things up, because it looks like it's going just ridiculously fast. Well, you know, they said uh, in the the trivia, they said that they used an air fan for an indoor skydiving facility. To make it... To generate the wind force of the train, because Cruz is like, I want to feel it. I want my face to deform when the wind hits it. Right. I'm, it's very it's very method, and I can't make my face do that. <laughs> so I need you to get me something that will make... And can I just say before you go on, I love the part where his head is facing towards the fan, because he gets the worst sort of Jim Carrey Dumb and Dumber hair in those scenes. <laughs> and I... And I, I and I can't not see it every single time. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he gets up on top of the train. His jacket flies off of him. He yanks his tie off. And, you know, it's crazy and chaotic and whatever. And he sees uh, Krieger bearing down on the train and the helicopter. But they're also about to reach the channel. So it's this race to try and Krieger's trying to get 
Phelps out of there before they get to the tunnel. But then Ethan sort of lets go and lets his body whip close down towards Phelps and sort of knocks him astray out of the way a little bit. And he grabs the cable out of Phelps's hands and he attaches the helicopter to the train. So now the helicopter is tethered to the train and they're just about to hit the the tunnel. So this is all very ridiculous. And Tom Cruise lets out this very... (laughs) Tom Cruise lets out this very kind of big yell of of whatever, and then and and then Jim kicks him or whatever, and then he flies off the side of the the train. He's holding on for dear life on the side of the train, and that's right when they fly into the channel, and then suddenly. Krieger has to navigate the helicopter into the channel because that's a thing that's going to happen. So, okay. Uh, So now they're in the tunnel and Ethan's hanging on for dear life. We also notice that there wasn't enough time for the knock list to be sent by Max before they hit the channel. So the internet goes out. Rats going to have to start uploading that list all over again once we get across the channel. So anyway. (laughs) <laughs> you know, something that I'll cover is that, you know, how many names got downloaded before they went into the channel and did those six agents get wiped out then? Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. Did it save that stuff before it got knocked out or did it just delete everything since the whole thing? Didn't oh, make yeah. It? Could have still been buffering on the laptop. I, or, I didn't think about that. Uh, or if the and if the list was in a compressed file, it's yeah. all one file. And if the whole file doesn't make it up, you can't uncompress it. It's corrupted, you know. Just saying. Computer stuff. Sorry. Please Computer. continue. Okay. So, <laughs> so anyway, Ethan's hanging on for dear life on the side of the train. He realizes there's an oncoming train in the other coming in the other direction while Jim is trying to get on board the copter. And naturally at the last second, Ethan is able to grab one of Jim's suction-y, climbery thingies. And he pulls himself onto the top of the train and saves himself. And then after the train blows by, Jim finally manages to jump onto the legs of the helicopter. Also, this is really silly, this part, because, so let me get this straight. There's enough room in the channel for two trains and a floating helicopter. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, yeah. So Ethan apparently still hell-bent on avenging Claire, continues to pursue and gets closer to the back end of the train. Krieger gets the bright idea of trying to chop old Tommy Boy to bits with the helicopter blades. He's sort of angling the the helicopter down so that the blades are reaching the back of his neck. And then Mm -hmm. just as he's doing that, his angle is too high. And so the back end of the helicopter hits the ceiling of the channel and sends him back and, and he can't complete that. And it's like, if you did that, if you hit the back end of a helicopter while flying at high speed in a tunnel, you're going down right there. That's it. Game over, man. But anyway, moving on. So, so this gives Ethan a second to actually jump onto the helicopter and use that old red light, green light gum. And then yeah, in, the most, in the, the most unrealistic moment of the film, he jumps off the helicopter. The blast wave from the explosion pushes him all the way back onto the train. He makes the leap because of the shockwave. And then the helicopter explodes and tumbles and does cartwheels. And then it hits the back of the train and the train begins to stop. And then the the blade, just as the train comes to a stop, the blade of the helicopter (laughs) is right just inches away from his throat. And then I love, I do love how silly it is. After the train completely stops and the guy working the back end of the train 
peeks his head up from the window and he sees the blade right next to Tom Cruise's throat and he passes out and hits the floor (laughs) afterwards. So corny, but kind of great. Yes. So then we see inside uh, with Kittredge. He's with Luther and Max and Luther hands over the knock list to Kittredge. And then Kittredge has a little chat with Max about lawyers and settlement, Mm -hmm. leaving the courts out of all this. And then that's, you know, Problem solved. And then we have our little epilogue with a TV report explaining away the incident as a freak accident. And then Ethan comes out of the pub where the TV was at. And we hear, I thought this was kind of a very, another moment of the times, sign of the times is as he's walking out, you hear the Cranberries song, (laughs) Dreams playing as he's walking over to his little cafe table where Luther's at. And they share a drink and we find out that Ethan's parents have been acquitted on drug charges, <laughs> on meth ch- <laughs> charges or whatever. And uh, and they get a full apology from the Justice Department. Luther's off the disavowed list. And, and at this point, Luther's like, why don't you come back to the IMF with me? And, you know, we'll be a team and it'll be, it'll be awesome. And then, of course, Ethan shrugs it off. And then, of course, he gets on the plane plane though and suddenly the stewardess says would you consider the cinema of the caribbean and cue the music yep (laughs) and there we have it (laughs) mission impossible (laughs) i thought it was going to be impossible to get through this but we did manage to do it we did we did you know good job us good job us and honestly i will say this Upon watching the movie, even the first time, I was like, this actually doesn't have nearly as many complicated twists and turns as a lot of Bond movies do. This is Mm -hmm. actually straightforward. This is actually a pretty straightforward story. So I knew that it would not feel like the longest podcast episode we've ever done. (laughs) No, no. I mean, at the heart of everything, this movie is a whodunit Mm -hmm. that's framed in a spy movie. Which is probably the reason why De Palma did it, because he likes whodunits, because he prays to the altar of Alfred Hitchcock, and yeah. that he was the king of the whodunit. And so, from that aspect, it's very straight and linear. It's basically just a who's the bad guy movie with some really good set pieces in it. And so, yeah. you're going to talk about the set pieces more than you're going to talk about anything else, which we did. Because they are the most ridiculous and egregious parts of this film, even though they're very cool in some circumstances. Yeah. Like I said before, I think the computer room scene was the genesis of this movie. Like they started with that and built everything else around it. I think in general, it's a very kind of a a journeyman level movie. It's not artisanal. It's like (laughs) it's crafted by somebody who knows how to make movies. Yep. But it's also not a spectacular spy movie thriller it's like you said it's a a whodunit right and and i think some of the choices they made along the way are a little head scratchy i mean and i know it's de palma so he's he's gonna shoot it the way he wants to shoot it you know there were like dutch angles in this movie and i was just like come i mean what are we making a batman movie (laughs) like 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 1960s batman (laughs) yeah yeah just some of the dramatic zooms and lighting and angled camera shots i was just like so between that stuff and and then obviously a lot of the technology really doesn't stand up to to time but tom cruise did um (laughs) you sure did um beat me to the punch on that one (laughs) but again (laughs) 
But again, it is a well-crafted movie in terms of making sure things pay off, making sure things relatively make sense. Right. Well, you know, it's funny. So, you know, the 90s is sort of, we had the the era of the 80s action hero, Mm -hmm. right? And that was all flash, no substance, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Starting all the way back with Commando and Raw Deal. I mean, Arnold and and Stallone pretty much defined that genre. Mm -hmm. So we get into the 90s and people wanted a little bit more complex movies. They wanted some more thinking. They wanted character development. They used to want dumb muscle-bound twits running around (laughs) with machine guns blowing stuff up. And so what I think we see here, particularly with the entire franchise of Mission Impossible, was Mm -hmm. they jumped on from the rebirth of James Bond. Right. They basically made De Palma's version of a James Bond movie, which is effectively what this is. Yeah. But the genre itself began to develop because of movies like GoldenEye and Die Another Day and Mission Impossible 1 and 2 and even True Lies. I mean, I'm going to say, I mean, it was a, yeah. True Lies was a parody of spy movies, but it pretty much perfectly encapsulated 80s action movies with kind of going towards that 90s sensibility. Yeah. But as we've moved along till now, because this franchise had way more legs than I ever thought it was going to have, mm-hmm. you know, we, we start, it has become sort of the true lies of the spy movies because it's kind of a parody of itself at this point in time. They're still fun to watch, but yeah. you've lost a lot of the character development in favor of the flash and bang like you did of the 80s movie. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it sort of has come full circle. (laughs) Yeah, this movie feels very, very, visually it feels very ham-fisted, but at the same time, yeah. it's Well, and then you go to Mission Impossible 2, which like Aliens from Alien is a completely different movie. It's got the same character in it, but, you know, it's John Woo. So now you're watching a John Woo spy movie as opposed to a Brian De Palma spy movie, and it goes a completely different direction. And I think John Woo is the one who really was, who set up the rest of the Mission Impossible movies. Absolutely, yeah. As far as making it, turning them more into action movies than whodunit or spy movies. Right. It becomes a lot more big action, big fighting. Right. All that sort of thing. And then this little auteur uh, director, J.J. Abrams, came in for, comes in for the next two and then produces the other two after that. And he's like, you know what we could do is we could make a movie that's everything, like Steven Spielberg. And <laughs> here's my vision. And... and Strangely enough, very successful at it. Extremely watchable movies, actually. Yeah, I think. But that, then again, I also think that three, however, is when Simon Pegg. You cannot say enough about how much Simon Pegg added to the dynamic of these movies. Oh, absolutely! As soon as you added his character into the squad, those movies suddenly become infinitely more watchable. Right, because he's the everyman. Yeah, you've got the anti-Tom Cruise suddenly. You've got the the guy that you can actually relate to, and it suddenly makes these movies more watchable. Right, and to me, that's always been the one downfall of the James Bond movies, is that there isn't that character. Even the down-to-earth characters are still James Bond down-to-earth characters. So you would think that, you know, Felix Leiter is your your gateway into the James Bond movies, but he's not because he's just an American version of James Bond. Yeah, the closest you get to a foil is Q. And and you only get Q for 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes in most most Bond movies. Especially like in the newer ones where he has a much more beefed up role. Ben Whitshaw isn't what I would call an everyman that you can identify with. Right. He's, he's a stuck-up, yeah. educated hipster nerd. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's very specific. 
But I mean, <laughs> that's actually, you know, for me, that's the difference between a good James Bond movie and a bad James Bond movie. The good James Bond movie is one where you don't need to have that because you're either enjoying the ridiculousness of it all, or it's got a, a well-crafted enough script that you're invested in James Bond himself. But in some of the ones yeah, that are Casino not... Casino Royale. Right. Or even Skyfall, which is really a mm-hmm. character piece on James Bond getting old and falling apart more than mm-hmm. anything else. But Quantum of Solace, it's like, so this is the last hour and a half of Casino Royale, right? Why did you just make it a, another movie? You could have just made a longer version of Casino Royale. Yeah, you know what, though? I really <laughs> love that movie. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, and I do too. It's not that I don't like watching. I'm just saying it, it yeah. lacked any gravitas and it lacked any identifiable mm-hmm. character. So to this one, really, you killed off uh, Emilio Estevez. He was the only person you would have given a shit about. Yeah. He was the Peg character. Right. So, no, so I agree. Simon Peg coming in, there's probably one of the reasons that franchise still continues to operate as it does. Because as ridiculous as yeah. it gets, you still have that touchstone. You still get the one guy that's like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How are we doing this? It'll definitely be fun to go through some of those. The Simon Pegg catalog of Mission Impossible movies. <laughs> there you go. We got we got one more shark to jump before we get there, but we could do it. We can jump that John Woo shark. <laughs> <laughs> Well, join us then next time on Central Intelligence Cinema for a review of The Hunt for Red October. Yes. Yes. We're going to get back into it with Sean. I'm the captain of a Russian submarine, as you can tell from my (laughs) accent. Yes. (laughs) Well, and with that, I'm Ben. And I'm Jason. And the CIC will return. With more missions, more martinis, and more mayhem. <laughs> yes. Yes. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs>